morning. Um, I'm reading this morning from 2 Timothy, uh, chapter 3, um, verses 1 to 17. Um, if you want to follow in the Bibles, it starts on page 1852. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women, who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these teachers opposed the truth. They are men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far because, as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learnt it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Thanks, Heather, and good morning once again. If you've made your way in in the last few minutes, if you've missed my first little welcome, thanks for being with us again this morning. Carl is my name. I'm going to spend the next uh, 20 or so minutes with you working our way through chapter 3 of 2 Peter. One of the things I love about being a pastor is that I often get asked questions about the Bible. I love answering questions, particularly genuine questions that are really seeking to try and understand who God is and what he wants for us in this world. That's why we have an SMS line here and the numbers on the screen behind me in your leaflets. If there are questions that come up today, I'd love you to text those in. I'd Uh, enjoy answering questions and that's why we have that little tear-off slip on the side of our leaflet as well sometimes we get some questions come in on those tear-off slips and last week I got an absolute perler of a question not through the SMS line but through one of our tear-off response slips this was the question you probably can't see it um, so well back there this is one of our kids writing in um, can tell I may have had to interpret somewhat what the question actually says. 
Uh, that's also a gift that pastors sometimes have. Let me put this in what I think are my words. The question goes something like this. So, dinosaurs were here a long time ago, so why is there that no one in the Bible talks about dinosaurs? It's a good question, isn't it? Good for a number of reasons, because I think it's trying to probe at the veracity of the Bible and the truth of the Bible. See, if the Bible contains truth, if it contains absolute truth, how are we to explain the dinosaurs? And coming from the kids, one of our kids, we know that it's a question that's seeking a legitimate answer. They're not just trying to trick the pastor, so to speak. They're looking for a real answer here. And I really appreciated this question because it's also perfectly time for us as we look at 2 Timothy chapter 3. Because this is a chapter in the Bible that explains how we as people ended up with the Bible. It explains how trustworthy the Bible is. And ultimately, it explains what the Bible's for, what its purpose is. Chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, I think, will help us to see the integrity and the truth of the Bible. In fact, if you're looking for a unifying theme in the whole of this chapter... Truth and integrity and real value, I think that would be a great starting point for us as we look at the, the unifying theme. What I want you to see today is that truth and integrity are anchored in the God-breathed words of the Bible. Truth and integrity are anchored in the God-breathed truths of the gospel. If you've got your leaflet with you today, I'd encourage you to open it. You'll see a little bit of an outline about where we're going. If you don't have a leaflet yet and you'd like one, I think there's still some out on the hall table. Feel free to go and grab one of those. I want us to see in this passage really three things today. Firstly, I want to see that there are people in this world who seek to teach a message about God that's devoid of the gospel and therefore lacks truth. That's the first point. Secondly, I want us to see... That Paul, our writer of this letter, is in stark contrast to these people. He teaches Jesus and his way of life reinforces the truth with which he speaks. And thirdly, I want us to spend a bit of time thinking about truth in terms of the Bible. The God-breathed words that lead to salvation through faith in Jesus. That's where we're going. Three big ideas untruth, truth, and then truth in the Bible. Chapter 3 of 2 Timothy comes in the context of Paul speaking about untruths. He's been speaking about false teachers and about foolish and stupid arguments. In fact, in chapter 2, Paul has just named two false teachers. He calls them Hymenius and Philetus. I really love this about Paul as I've been reading through this letter. He's not a man that pulls punches at all. He calls out Hermonius and Philetus, two people who were teaching that the resurrection had already happened, and he says their teaching is untrue and it'll spread like gangrene. He calls a spade a spade. And it's into this context of people teaching things that are not true that Paul warns Timothy right at the start of this chapter that seasons of terrible times will characterize the last days. 
I'm not sure if you've ever thought about this before, but we are today in what the Bible describes as the last days. Have you ever thought about the time in which we live to be the last days? Those last days have now been going for 2,000 years, but the Bible describes the last days as the time after the death and resurrection of Jesus and the time before his return. That's when we, where we live now. The letter to the Hebrews reminds us of that. At the start of the letter to the Hebrews, it says this. It says, In the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son. Now, this talk about last days, it might sound a bit, a bit sombre or a bit foreboding, a bit like a doomsday clock ticking on in the background. Yeah, there is, in fact, something called the doomsday clock. It was first introduced by the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, whoever they are, back in 1947. And it's supposed to represent the likelihood of a man-made global catastrophe brought on by a nuclear disaster of one form or another. The clock is still being updated each year. In 2018, according to the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, we were on the cusp of catastrophe. The clock was set at two minutes to midnight. According to the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, this time is a time of urgency and alarm. I think Paul wants Timothy to see the urgency and the alarm of these last days as well. Now, Paul's not concerned about the catastrophe of nuclear war, of course, but he is concerned about the urgency because he knows that the message of the gospel is a message of life and death. There is, therefore, urgency to the time in which we live. And I want you to know there is also some foreboding. We are to expect seasons of attack and persecution if we hold on to the gospel. Today, you might not be feeling that sense of foreboding. If that's you, if you're not feeling that at the moment, give thanks to God for his kindness to you. Because the truth is that in these last times, there will be periods of intense persecution. Some of us feel that now. Christians in different parts of the world are certainly feeling that at the moment. Now, just because there are times of foreboding, it doesn't mean that every day is necessarily going to be terrible. I like the way John Stott puts it. There's a quote behind me. I think it's potentially up on the screen. Maybe not this one. It says, These last days are not uniformly or continually evil, but they will include perilous seasons. They will be perilous seasons. You may be wondering what those perilous seasons are. Perhaps it's climate change, global warming, lack of rain, water restrictions. These are all things that are challenges of the time in which we live, aren't they? But I think Paul's referring to something quite different here. I think he's referring to the peril that relates to those associated with teaching, something that looks like it comes from the church, but is in fact very different. And Paul's fear is that these people will lead others away from the truth, and in doing so, that they'll be led away from life and immortality. 
And so Paul wants Timothy to be aware of these false teachers and he wants them to respond to it. And he helps Timothy do that by firstly helping him to recognise what these false teachers look like. And so in verse 3 he begins to list out or set out the character traits of those who teach like this. Have a look at these words down with me, uh, I think starting uh, in verse 3 or verse 2. Let me read them to you. It says, People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. It's a pretty damning list of characteristics or behaviours, isn't it? And perhaps in some way you might relate to aspects of this list, maybe only in some ways. And if this list is kind of convicting you a little this morning, you may need to spend some time with God today thinking those things through and praying about those things. Yet I don't think the point of what Paul is trying to say here is to help us reflect on our own sinfulness. Rather, he's describing the sinful behaviours of those who lead people away from the gospel. It's an impressive list, if you want to put it that way, a litany of sins. What links it all together? John Stott says it's misplaced love. Misplaced love. Another commentator I read says it's like these people have done a, a Copernican revolution. Some of you might remember from your school science days, Nicholas Copernicus. You know, his paradigm shift was to show that the earth revolved around the sun rather than the sun around the earth. He flipped the whole way that the world thought about this on its head. Well, here, these people that Paul describes, they've put themselves at the centre when they should have God at the centre. They're lovers of themselves, not lovers of God. And to make it worse, they look like they're teaching the truth of God. I think that's what it means when Paul says they have a form of godliness. Perhaps these people were in some way representing the formal religious institutions of the time. Perhaps they were dressed in robes. They're supposed to lead others to the truth of the gospel, but instead they're leading them away. And they're doing that because they're not teaching the gospel. Their words lack power. I wonder what you think that means. I think it means that their words lack the gospel because the gospel is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God. Let me show you that. I think it's a really interesting thing to get our heads around. Come with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. We're going to look at Romans as a church a little later on this year. You'll find Romans chapter 1 on page 1745 of your Bibles. In Romans chapter 1, Paul is laying out his, his thinking and his manifesto is really what he gets to in verse 16 of Romans chapter 1. Verse 16. It speaks here of the power of God. Let me read Romans chapter 1, verse 16 to you. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why is he not ashamed? Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. See, the gospel is what has power. There's no power in robes, no power in the institution or anything else that looks holy or looks like the church. 
It's the gospel that has power. So these people that Paul is speaking about in 2 Timothy chapter 3, they might look like they're speaking about God, but their love is misplaced, their morality has become skewed, and that's because they aren't teaching the gospel and therefore their words lack power. John Stott, again, I think I've got the quote on this one on the screen. He says this, In the history of mankind, although this is a shameful thing to confess, religion and morality have been more often divorced than married. Religion and morality have more often been divorced than married. How well we know that today, don't we? As we look back on the way in which the church is thought of. And yet despite this, in fact, actually probably because their words look lack power, look at how these people are behaving, look what they're doing, we'll see it there in verse 6. These people, they are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women, who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. These false teachers, they're corrupting the vulnerable. Paul, I don't think here is really saying anything about the comparative strength of men and women or that women are necessarily spiritually weaker. Rather, he is saying, watch out for the vulnerable amongst you and protect them. For when the vulnerable in our society are preyed on, I think that must make God angry. I don't know what you think. When the poor and the weak or those who are down in their luck are preyed upon, when those who are so easily swayed by evil desires were used by others, it seems terrible, doesn't it? Particularly despicable. Those who prey on those vulnerable sort of people, Paul names here as being men of depraved minds. And in what's become his usual style in this letter, Paul's not afraid to call out the tricksters, to call out the deceivers. And here he names Janus and Jambri. You might be wondering who these guys are. Their names never actually come up in the Bible, but tradition has it that Janus and Jambri were the magicians who worked for Pharaoh during the time of the plagues. The Christian forefather Origen, in his writing, refers to a book named Janus and Jambri that supposedly details their exploits about how they kind of enacted some of these tricks back in the time of Pharaoh. These men are tricksters. They don't bring the gospel, they don't speak with real power, they live with a Copernican shift, with themselves at the centre, their own prophet at the centre and God at the edge. And at times it might feel like that's the whole world for us as we look around. We might feel at times as we look around the world, it's difficult to see those who actually do proclaim the truth of the gospel. But I want you to see right at the end of this little section the delightful way it ends. It's there in verse 9. Let me read it to you. It says, But they will not get very far because as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. And it's a great reminder for you today. God will triumph. He will triumph. Indeed, he's already won the battle. Jesus' death and resurrection was that event in history, the turning point where God won. God is victorious. Death has been defeated. There's no doubt about how God's story ends. There's no doubt about the outcome of those who exploit the vulnerable. Because God has won. 
And because God's one, we can have great confidence in the power of the gospel and confidence in its transformative work. We can have confidence in God's word, that it's true and real and can be found. And Paul shows us this by contrasting the life of the tricksters with his own life in the second section of this chapter. Paul contrasts his suffering with the ill-gotten gain of the fraudsters and the tricksters. Let me read you just the first few lines of this next section. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. You see here Paul laying out his own way of living and contrasting it with the tricksters and the false teachers. See, whereas the false teachers love money and they're boastful and proud and abusive and disobedient to their parents, Paul is patient and faithful and his love endures and he's willing to suffer for it. And he's like that because that's what Jesus is like. You see that there down in verse 12? Paul is in Christ Jesus. You can't have God more at the centre than being in Christ Jesus. Being in him, that's having God at the centre. Now, I think very few of us would write about ourselves in this way. It's not a very Australian way of doing things, is it? But Paul, I don't think here, is really trying to blow his own trumpet. Rather, he's encouraging Timothy of the virtue of truth and he's showing him the power of the gospel, its transformative power. And he wants Timothy to follow in his footsteps. Paul says a very similar thing in the first letter to the Corinthian church. There he says at the end of of chapter 10 and the start of chapter 11, he says, I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. He goes on to say, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And so we get to this point in chapter 3, with Paul having contrasted the lives and the teaching of Timothy's opponents with Paul's own life and the power of the gospel. Hope you can see the contrast there. And Paul has given Timothy an implicit instruction to follow in his footsteps and an explicit warning that this will lead him to a place of suffering and hardship. You might be wondering, is it worth it? Is it worth the effort or worth the pain? What can be gained from doing this? Paul himself says that the evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse. In that kind of environment, isn't it easier just to crawl into our shelves or to pull the blankets over our heads and just to ignore the world around us? I reckon Timothy probably feels this a bit as he's reading this letter as well. And so Paul points Timothy to the truth. He points Timothy to what he's learned and become convinced of. He reminds Timothy of the faith of those who he learnt the truth from. And he reminds him of what is at stake. Salvation. Have a look with me at verses 14 and 15. These are great, great verses. I hope you treasure them as well. Paul says this, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, 
and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul's saying, isn't he, Timothy, the going is going to get tough, but continue on. You know the truth. You learnt it from your mother, you learnt it from your grandma, you know it's written down in the Holy Scriptures. You know the truth, that faith in Christ Jesus is where salvation is found. You know the power of the gospel. Remember Romans chapter 1, the gospel is the power of God that brings salvation. That's truth. And thinking about truth, it brings me back to that question about the dinosaurs. If the dinosaurs were around so long ago, how come no one talks about them? Or if I've understood the question right, why doesn't the Bible give us the answers to the questions we might have about things like dinosaurs? Or put another way, if the Bible is God's word to us, why doesn't it tell us everything else we need to know about the universe? Why doesn't it tell us, for example, about the nature of things like moon rocks? John Stott again, and I'm sure I've got this quote on the screen behind me. The Bible is essentially a handbook of salvation. Its overarching purpose is to teach not facts of science, for example, the nature of moon rocks, which people can discover by their own empirical investigation, but facts of salvation, which no space exploration can discover, but only God can reveal. The Bible is then the story of salvation. The story of God at work in the world, bringing people back into relationship with him. But that's not all that Paul has to say about the Bible. He goes on to speak of its source and its utility. Scripture is God-breathed, Paul says. It comes from God. These words, sure, they're written by Paul, but they come from God. And yes, I think Paul probably does have his own letters in mind here as part of Scripture. Certainly other apostles considered Paul's writing to be Scripture. If you would like to keep flicking, you might like to come over to 2 Peter chapter 3 with me, where you'll find this on page 1897 of your Bibles. Peter, this time, is commenting on the writing of Paul here. I want you to see him describes Paul's writing as Scripture. And I'm showing you this just so that you understand that Paul's writing is part of Scripture as well. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, we read this, Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. And you see here that Peter also links scriptures and salvation, but what I want you to see clearly is that Peter recognises Paul's writings as being part of scripture. And so back in 2 Timothy, Paul says this, all scripture, back in 2 Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Someone ever asks you, what's the Bible for? Well, here are some verses that will help you answer that question. Firstly, the Bible 
will make us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus. And secondly, the Bible is useful for teaching and correcting and training in righteousness so that we may be equipped for every good work. It's not necessarily written to tell us the answers that we might be looking for with the dinosaurs, but it is written so that we might know God as the creator, the one who fashioned the dinosaurs, the one who controlled how they lived and died. It tells us that God is in control of the universe. And it's written as a guide for us in this way of life. It'll teach us and correct us and rebuke us. That's why here at Trinity Church Unley, we spend so much of our Sunday morning in the Bible. I love so much of what we do about Sunday morning. I love singing. Wasn't the band great today? I love singing with you. I really love our coffee. Thank you to those who make such good coffee here. But what we're really here to do with each other is not just to sing and enjoy great coffee. We're here to have the Bible, these God-breathed words, shape us and rebuke us and correct us and equip us for every good work. That's what the Bible's for. And that's why if you're looking for a church that will kind of skim through the more difficult parts of the Bible, this is not that church. This is a church that's going to preach the truth of the gospel. This is a church that's going to value all of the parts of the Bible. This is a church that will seek to have the teaching of the Bible shape our views on how we're to live life. This is a church that will have our ethics shaped by the word of God. Now, of course, we're going to have to do that carefully and with intelligent discussion and reflection and patience. Not every part of the Bible is straightforward or easy to understand. And, of course, we're going to need the illumination of the Spirit as we seek to understand what the Bible says. But can you see here that the Bible is God-breathed? It's truth. And we must hold on to its teaching. It might hurt us doing so. It might be hard to do that. But as I read it, it is exactly what Timothy is being called to do and I think it's what we're called to do today also. You know, I think Paul's letter to Timothy, it's been building up to this point. Paul has encouraged Timothy to fan into flame the gift of God, that gift to suffer for the gospel, to be willing to do that. He's been urging Timothy to compete according to the rules, to work hard and to put up with hardship. In the face of those who don't speak the truth, Paul has been encouraging Timothy to speak the truth with the power of the gospel. And he's been telling Timothy to do that in the grace given by God, not in his own strength. And here I think we see that grace flowing in the God-breathed words of the Bible. Timothy. The scriptures will make you and your church wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Timothy, scripture will train and shape you so that you will be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's why we value the Bible here. It's why we read it every Sunday. And I hope it's why you read it more often than just on Sunday morning. Because these are the words of God for us designed to shape us and mould us 
and rebuke us where necessary and lead us to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father God, we give you thanks that we have your words written to us in a language that we can read and understand. Thank you that your words are able to shape and correct and rebuke us. Father, we pray that through your spirit and the grace that you offer, you would make us wise for salvation through faith in your Son. Father, we ask also that you would fortify us and strengthen us that we'd be able to hold on to the words of the Bible and live them out. And in doing so, bring honour and glory to you and your name. Amen. I can get rid of this. I've got a couple of great questions today. Thank you again for texting your questions. I did say I love questions, and I really do. Um, so thank you for asking questions uh, of me. Um, first question today, uh, you pointed out in verse 9 that false teachers will not get very far as their folly will be clear to everyone. Will this happen while on earth or when Christ returns? Kind of first bit of the question. Um, I, I think perhaps both. Um, so there's maybe a bit of both happening here. Um, I think ultimately we know that they will not get very far when Jesus returns. Uh, if you want to see that, have a look at Psalm 73. Um, Psalm 73 Uh, is a great psalm in terms of sort of reinforcing some of these things. It says uh, kind of about those who are far from God, things like in verse 2 or verse 3, For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Speaking of the wicked. At the end of the psalm it says this though, Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of your deeds. And we can be confident that in the end, whatever that looks like, this life or the next, they won't succeed. That's the first part of that question. Um, How do we guard against false teachers, um, particularly when they're described as being as ferocious as wolves? Um, This question's come up a couple of times today. It's a a really great question. I think there's a number of ways in which we can go about guarding against false teachers. One is we need to know the gospel and know it well. We need to know what the truth is. Uh, It's really great to be uh, thinking and talking about what is the gospel and what it is that we believe. And you'll notice that Paul does that a number of times as he writes to Timothy. He reminds him of the gospel. Jesus died and raised, descended from David. He says those sorts of things a number of times throughout the letter as he reminds Timothy of what the gospel is. We need to know what it is to be able to stand against it. The other thing I think is really great for us to do is to meet together like this, to encourage and build each other up in this sort of environment. Singing songs that remind each other of what the gospel is is also another great way for us to stand up against false teachers in the week. I don't know about you, but the words that we sing on Sunday kind of bounce around in my head throughout the week. And when we're singing words that are gospel words, that I think helps us stand up against false teachers in our week. Um, Another question. uh, Again, I think relating to this, how are we to uh, stand up against false teachers? 
How are we, what, what is that, how does that apply to us in our lives? And it asks the question then about the mentoring, discipling relationship that Paul has with Timothy. Is there a role for that in our world today? My answer to that is, I think of course there is. I think mentoring, discipling relationships are so important for us in our church. I've shared with you over the last couple of weeks about one of my mentors in life, Warwick, who helped me understand the gospel, who spent time showing me how the gospel intersects with life, and who opened God's word to me and helped train me in righteousness, who helped rebuke me where necessary and build me up. I think those sort of relationships are great. I've said uh, over the last couple of weeks, and I want to keep saying it again, one of the primary ways we do that here at Trinity Church Unley is through community groups. So if you're not part of a community group, I'd love you to be in one. I'd love you to get involved in a community group. They will help you form relationships like that. If for one reason or another you're not in a community group, but you would still like a mentoring-type relationship in your life, please fill out a card and put that on there, and I'd love to get in contact with you because there are many people here who would love to be mentoring others, or perhaps, uh, so perhaps uh, that's you, so pop your name on a card, either if you'd like to be mentored or you would like to mentor someone, that would be a good thing to do. Um, I hope that answers the questions that you sent through, if not, please come and see me and I'd love to chat with you about those questions a little further. Thank you.